I'm going to go ahead and read our scripture this morning. It's from Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come to you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Good morning. So uh, I had Sherry read the scripture this morning because this is her last Sunday with us for a while. So if you remember a couple of months ago, some months ago, three months ago, we commissioned her. We said, get out. No, we didn't. We, we, we said, God, go with you. And uh, so she had some issues with visas and things, but she leaves tomorrow morning, right? For Nigeria, and so how long will it take you to get there, do you know? Um, over 24 hours. Okay, so long flight. So I will thought we would pray for her, not one final time, but one final time before she leaves as a congregation. So would you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for Sherry, for her heart, for you, for her love for you, for her desire to represent you, uh, to cross cultural barriers, to see your word uh, translated into different languages, Father. We thank you for that. Lord, and we pray you would just be with her in this time of travel, even in this Christmas season, Father, you would, as she arrives, you would give her friends and people to enjoy uh, this holiday season with, Father, but most of all, just, just be with her and use her, encourage her, and we thank you for her in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Yay. Okay. How's everybody doing? Okay? One of these days I'm going to ask that and you're going to go, ah, oh, it's terrible. And I'm going to say, well, too bad. <laughs> We're just going to, hopefully this will help. The, the Word of God is the best thing when life isn't going right. We can find His strength there. So today we continue uh, the Christmas story recorded in the Gospel of Luke, the first two chapters. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 25 which uh, begins with Luke's purpose. He tells us the purpose for his gospel. If you remember, he addresses his gospel to a man named, a Gentile Roman named Theophilus. And his purpose in recording the events of Jesus' 
birth. That's what we're looking at now. But he goes on to record the events of his life, his death, his resurrection. And the purpose is that Theophilus and others, us included, may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He says that at the end of his introduction in verse 4. Theophilus had already been taught about Jesus, so this isn't new stuff to him. And Luke writes to reinforce and to provide certainty for what he'd learned. He wants Theophilus to have confidence that, what he, that, that, that he can put his faith in this Jesus, that he's going to tell this story about, this true historical record of Jesus Christ. And to provide that confidence, he begins with the angel Gabriel's announcement of John the Baptist's miraculous birth. That was last week. It was miraculous, if you remember, because John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were old, past the age of childbearing, and Elizabeth was barren. And even though Zechariah was a righteous man, he did have, as the angel announced to him, that he would have a son through his wife Elizabeth, he did have this lapse of faith. He had a little a doubt that Elizabeth would be able to give birth to a son. A son who Gabriel says would be the forerunner of the Lord. In verses 16 and 17, if you remember we read, and he, speaking of John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord's people prepared. John would go, bef- go before the Lord. He would come before the Lord. He would be preparing the people for the Lord's coming. So Luke begins his gospel with the promise of this miraculous uh, birth of the forerunner, John the Baptist. And then, in verses 26 through 28, we find out exactly who that Lord is. Will, and, will be and how he will come. That's what Sherry read for us, and that's our passage for today. Gabriel's announcement to Mary of the even more miraculous birth. So we had one miraculous birth in John, and now we have the second, even more miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lord, uh, and the Lord would come not in a cloud, as God traveled with Israel in the Old Testament of fear, pillar of Uh, cloud by day and fire by night, not on a white horse as he will come one day, as Revelation teaches, but in the form of a man, a human baby. And with this announcement of his coming, Gabriel tells us much about who he will be and what he will do, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. So from the beginning, Luke wants Theophilus and us, that's kind of cool, Theophilus and us, come on, Liam. Give me a little smile. He's, Liam's the only one. I, I can only see this row with my, oh, my glasses. Uh, so he wants Theophilus and us to be convinced that what God is doing is centered around Jesus Christ. He first wants to convince us that God is sovereignly at work. He, so he records the birth of John and Jesus, these miraculous births. He wants to convince us that God is, is at work doing something. It's something special, something new, and that new uh, that new work is centered around Jesus Christ. He wants to, uh, us to have confidence that Jesus is at the heart of God's sovereign, new, special work in our world. And you might be thinking, well, I'm already convinced of that. 
This is well-traveled ground for those who've been in church uh, for uh, very many Christmas seasons <laughs> or in church at all. This is the focus. We, you know, we are, what, what are we? Christians. We focus on Christ. We should know about Christ. We know who Jesus is. We know what He's done. We know He's at the heart of God's work in our world. And, and that may be. You may, you may know all that stuff. But I'd ask that today you again allow God's Word to penetrate your heart. Because it's not how much we know. I think we think that. Uh, I know, I know it. It's not how much we know or even how often we hear the truths about Jesus that matters. What matters is, and why Luke is writing is, that we are certain about what we've been taught. That we're convinced of who Jesus truly is and therefore are willing to trust in Him completely. Luke doesn't want us to suffer from unbelief like Zechariah, which we looked at last week, but to believe like, like Mary, which we saw last week a little bit and we'll see more today. So that when life becomes difficult and we don't understand what's going on here, that based on what we've been taught and what we're being taught about who Jesus is, about what He's done, we'll continue to trust that God is sovereignly and specially at work allowing the truth of God's Word to penetrate our hearts and bring transformation to our lives. That's what I'm praying will take place today as we look at this very familiar passage. Would you just pray with me as we begin? Father God, I pray, Lord, as we... Uh, Look at your son. We look at his, his coming, who he would be, who he is, who he will be, Father. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our hearts, open our minds to receive what you have for us today. Lord, anything that's from me that would fall by the wayside, but what is from you, what is true, what is right, pure and noble, that it would penetrate our hearts, not that we might remember it, although that would be good, but that it might bring transformation to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. And so we begin with Gabriel's gracious greeting. Three G's. That's pretty impressive. We got, we got some more G's coming too. Uh, not as many as the, I mean, we got three here. Now in verse 26 and 27, as Sherry read, Luke first introduces us to, to Mary and Joseph. And we'll look at that shortly. But I want to begin in verse 28, where we read, And he, Gabriel, came to her, Mary, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Uh, the word favored is the Greek word kerito. It comes from the word charis. And you may be familiar with that. It's one of those Greek words that some people are familiar with. It's, uh, the, most, it's the word we translate most often, grace, charis. To be favored means to have received grace. In fact, we rightly define grace as receiving God's unmerited favor. So the very first thing Gabriel says to Mary is that she will receive God's grace. And what do we know about grace? Well, we just said it. Grace is the undeserved free gift of God, which means that Mary didn't deserve this honor. I know many people think she was great, and she was, she was probably pretty good, it seems. 
but she's given this honor by grace. There were certainly other virgins in Israel. God could have prepared and chosen any one of them, at least any one of them, as we'll see from the house of David. But in His grace, He chooses Mary. And that's good news for us, right? For us, God bestowed favor. As God bestowed favor on Mary, He will, through her Son, bestow favor, grace on the world. The Apostle John makes this clear in his announcement of the coming of Christ. Uh, John doesn't go through all the historical details. He's more theological in his uh, incarnation, Christ coming into the world. John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word, Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the one Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Allow that to penetrate your heart. When Jesus entered our world, He came full of grace. Thank God He came full of grace. Grace that He freely gives. Grace upon grace. Gabriel says to Mary, you are favored. You've received God's grace. He's with you. And in verse 29, we see what Mary is feeling. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Gabriel says that Mary has found favor, grace with the Lord, that the Lord is with her. God is with you. So why is she greatly troubled? Well, wouldn't you be? I mean, seriously. If out of the blue an angel appeared to you, even with good words, words of grace, you would be thinking, what is, what's going on here? What does this mean? Why am I favored? How is the Lord with me? Mary isn't exactly thrilled with Gabriel's appearance or greeting. She's, she's not only troubled, but like most who encounter an angel, she's afraid. Luke doesn't record if Mary said anything at this point, but apparently Gabriel uh, was perceptive to what she was feeling. Maybe her face went, you know, I don't know. Uh, verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Gabriel reassures Mary. He again emphasizes that she's found grace with God. Mary, you're going to receive the grace of God. This is good news. And, when Gabriel, and then Gabriel gets to the heart of the message. Okay, I'm going to, now I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you what's going on. What follows are the things Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants Theophilus and us to be certain about. This is Gabriel's glorious description. Anybody got a G word for description? I couldn't come up with anything, so I let it go. Which begins, this description begins with a startling announcement to the Virgin Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now we'll look at Mary's reaction to this uh, humanly impossible statement shortly. Because apparently Gabriel doesn't pause and give her a time to react. Instead he continues telling Mary and us who this son will be and what he will do. And it will be glorious. Gabriel tells Mary at least five truths about the son she will conceive and deliver. And Luke wants us to be certain about these glorious truths. Because the more we allow, this is, this is, this is a truth here, because the more we allow the truth of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done to penetrate our hearts, our minds, our souls, that's how we're transformed into his likeness. 
the more we grasp hold of these truths. So let's examine Gabriel's glorious description of Jesus. And the first thing he tells Mary is that Jesus will be the Savior. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now I realize here in the English, this verse doesn't specifically say that he will be the Savior. But the name Jesus is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Yeshua, Joshua. And Joshua, Jesus, means Savior, Deliverer. Now my name is uh, Richard Clifford. How many knew that? You get a prize. All right, good. Who cares? Richard is Germanic, and it means king or ruler, as it should be. No, just kidding. <laughs> and Clifford is Old English, and it means a Ford by the side of a cliff. Not a Ford Mustang. That would be nice, right? But a shallow water that you can cross. You've heard that we forded the river. We crossed the river. So my name literally means I am a king of some shallow water beside a cliff. I rule the waters. So my point is, for us, just because we're named something does not make it so. However, when you're named something by an angel sent from God, when God gives you a name, it isn't just something you're called, it's a description of who you are. Remember how God changed Abraham's name. It was Abram, which meant exalted father. Not bad. I'd, I'd take that name. But Abraham means father of many, which is that exactly what God promised to Abraham and exactly who he became. Through his son Isaac, he became the father of the Jews. Through his son Ishmael, the father of the Arabs. And to those who believe, Paul says, Abraham is our father in the faith. So the name is crucial to who this son will be. The son of Mary, the son Mary will conceive and give birth to is and will become the Savior. In fact, when the angel announces Jesus' birth to Joseph, he spells it out. The angel says to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His name is Savior, Jesus, because he will save his people. And what will he save them from? Not the Romans, not poverty, not difficult lives, but from their sins. That's who this son is, and that's what he will do. That's his laser beam focus, if you will. And that's what we need to be certain of. Are you convinced that Jesus has saved you from your sins? Think about it for a moment. Think about every vile, debased, sinful thing you've ever done. I know this isn't going to be pleasant. Every lie you've told every person you've wronged, every lustful, prideful, hateful deed or thought you've thought or done, and then realize, be certain, that Jesus came to save you from those things. And he saves us in two ways, okay? First, through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, he pays the penalty for every sin you've ever committed. He takes upon him your sin. He takes upon himself the wrath of God that we deserve 
Now that's Easter, but that's what Gabriel has in view. Christmas, the birth of Christ, would have no meaning without Easter, the death and resurrection of Christ. As the hymn says, born to die upon Calvary, Jesus suffered my sin to forgive. Born to die upon Calvary, He was wounded that I might live. So first, through His death on the cross, Jesus will save us from the sins we commit, from the thoughts, the deeds that we uh, disobey God. And second, by giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit, by coming to live within us, by transforming our hearts and our desires, by giving us a new heart and new holy desires, He will save us from sinning. He saves us from the sins we commit, and He saves us from committing sin. And remember what John wrote. From His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The salvation that Jesus offers comes by grace alone. We can't earn it, and we don't deserve it. He is the Savior. He will be full of grace, and we will be saved by grace. That, my friend, is who He is. Uh, be convinced of it. Be certain of it. Believe it. But no, don't miss one very important thing. He's not going to save everyone. All people. The angel says He's going to save who? His people. And who are His people? His people are His people. The people who've put their faith in Him. The people who trust in Him. Not the people that ignore Him. Not the people that despise Him. Not the people that reject Him. The people that love Him. The people that follow Him. The people who have turned from their sin and turned to Jesus Christ as their Savior. As Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, makes so very clear, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Jesus is the Savior for those Jesus is the Savior who saves by grace through faith. So if you're His people, if your faith is in Him, then be certain of what you've been taught. Trust in Him. Trust that He's come to save you from your sin and saved you to a life, not of sinlessness, but sinning less and less as you experience the process of being transformed into your Savior's likeness. So first, be certain of the glorious truth that Jesus Christ will be, is the Savior. He's the Savior of the world, and He is, or He can be, your Savior as well if you trust in Him. Then second, be certain Jesus will be great. Gabriel says to Mary, He will be great. That's great. At this point, from Mary's perspective, and all of this is like, because we're reading it for Mary's, but it's like a future thing. For us, it's a, it's, a, it's a past and an ongoing thing. But for Mary, he will be great. At this point, uh, that word great in the Greek means abundant, more than enough. Uh, many of us experienced this a few weeks ago at Thanksgiving. The food comes out. We eat and eat. We stuff ourselves. And guess what? There's still plenty left over. We have an abundance a great deal of, more than enough food. And in the same way, Jesus is great. He has more than enough power and ability and grace to accomplish His purpose. 
Let's think for a moment about his greatness. For us, greatness is often seen, I've, I see this in people, they, they're out in the nature and that's great. In fact, the universe itself, its vastness, its abundance, I mean, we can't conceive of the, the greatness, the abundance of our universe. And Scripture teaches that through Jesus, the universe, everything was created. He's the creator of all things. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1.1, For by Him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Is there any great thing that, that excites you? You think about uh, something that you go out of your way to see or hear. The Hawaiian Islands, those are pretty great. That water, the Grand Canyon. I mean, you just walk up there and you go, oh my gosh. Yellowstone, Yosemite. I mean, one of my favorite places to go is where Patty lives, Colorado. You know, because there's, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of beauty in Colorado. The colors there. But if you name it, whatever it is, Jesus made it. And he's greater than all of it. If you took the greatest people in all areas of life throughout all history and put them in a room with Jesus, their greatness would pale in comparison to his. Some of you might remember the boxer Muhammad Ali, who said of himself again and again, I'm the greatest, right? Now he's probably talking about boxing, I, I hope. But Muhammad Ali would be forced to his knees with only a look if he were to ever enter the ring with Jesus. I know it's not a true story, but I love the scene in Ben-Hur. You've, Amber, have you seen Ben-Hur? Oh, great. I'm so happy. Did you? No, I won't ask if you liked it. Okay, she liked it. That's good. Uh, there's a scene when Ben-Hur is, uh, no, I'm sorry, when Jesus is giving Ben-Hur some water. Ben is, at that time, a Roman prisoner. He's been marching in the desert all day long, and he's parched. Jesus, filled with compassion, begins to give him some water, and a Roman soldier tries to stop him. No water for him. And with not even a word, just a look, the soldier turns away in fear and shame. There is nothing that Jesus cannot do a thousand times better than the person you admire most in any area of human endeavor. And it's Jesus that came into our world that became one of us that, that he might save us. So be assured, not of your own greatness, but of his. Be certain that he has abundant, more than enough power and ability and grace to not only save us from our sins, but to grant us eternal life, to transform us into His image, to create in us a new heart, to give us abundant life. So second, be certain of the glorious truth that Jesus is great in all things and that He will work greatly in your life. And third, be certain Jesus will, will be the Son of God. Verse 32 continues, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And in, down in verse 35 we read, The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
Jesus will not only uh, be the Son of Mary, but He will also be the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. As disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, the, the Bible, the Scripture calls us, we're privileged to be called sons and daughters of the Most High. We are children of God. But here Gabriel is giving a description of, of what distinguishes this child from all others. His sonship is different from yours and mine. As the Apostle Paul wrote again in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the eternal Son of God. He is God the Son. We are sons and daughters of God only because He became one of us. Because He lived among us. Because He died for us. So Jesus is the unique Son of God. His birth will mark the most unique event in all history. When God takes on human flesh. When the divine becomes human. He will be fully 100% God. And fully 100% man. The Son of Mary and the Son of God. Theologians call this the uh, hypostatic union or hypostatic union. That'll be on the quiz later, so along with incarnation. Now, we don't need to remember, uh, there, there won't be a quiz in case you're new here. We don't do that. Uh, we don't need to remember these theological terms, but we do need to understand that this child, to be our Savior, to be our great Savior, he had to be both human and divine. It was through his divinity that he was able to live a sinless life and become this perfect sacrifice. And we'll talk more about that shortly. And it, and it was because of, he was human that he could be a sacrifice for humanity. It's only because Jesus was, is 100% man, 100% God, that he could be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of man. Gabriel says, Mary, you don't have to fully grasp the hypostatic union. Well, he didn't say that, but it's kind of... But know this, the son, the human that you conceive and give birth to will be the unique son of God. He will be divine. And because of both his humanity and his divinity, he alone will be the great savior. So third, be certain of the glorious truth that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And fourth, be certain, Jesus will be king. At the end of verse 32, we read, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. The Old Testament teaches that uh, David's kingly line, so David became king after Saul, that that line would not end. Not that there wouldn't be a break, but there would, so David and then Solomon and then there were some others and there was a break, but uh, it will go on. Therefore, this child to be king, he must first be a legal descendant of David. And that takes us back to verse 26, where Luke introduces Joseph and Mary. In the sixth month, this refers to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, not Mary's, because an announcement at six months would be kind of anticlimactic, right? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. 
So Joseph and Mary are betrothed. They're promised to one another. Now, I sort of remember when Christine and I got betrothed. I was uh, 21 and she was 20. Both older than Mary, by the way. We'd been dating on and off since we were 14. And we discussed marriage many times. But one December, December evening... We were sitting alone on Christina's parents' couch, and she looked at me and said, when are you going to ask me to marry you? <laughs> and after I got over the shock, I said, how about now? I got down on a knee, and I asked her to marry her, me to marry her, and we were betrothed, right? You might not think that would last, but it's been over 36 years now, so okay. However, in our day then and even now, betrothal or what we call engagement doesn't have uh, any real legal ramifications, right? Until you walk down the aisle and get that certificate and somebody signs it and you say, I do, there's no legal obligation. You just say, I don't want to be engaged anymore and you're done. But for Mary and Joseph, betrothal was a legal binding covenant breakable only by divorce. Mary would give birth to the child, but Joseph, her betrothed, would be in the eyes of the law his father. Therefore, Luke makes it clear that Joseph is of the house of David. The relationship uh, Joseph had with the child puts him, Jesus, in the Davidic line, legally. Also, in chapter 3 of Luke's gospel, Luke records that Mary, Mary's genealogy And from that we know that Mary was also a descendant of David, of the house of David. So legally and physically, Jesus was a descendant of David. Therefore, he could and would fulfill the prophecies that a son of David will rule over Israel. This child would be the king of the Jews. But more than that, John, speaking of Jesus in Revelation 19.16, writes, On his robe and on his thigh he had a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus will not only rule over Israel, but He will be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He will rule over the nations, over all people. At His name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Paul says to the Philippians. Gabriel, in verse 33, goes on to say, And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and and of His kingdom there will be no end. Jesus will not only be a king, he will be a universal, eternal king. And this means he's alive and ruling over his people right now. Are you certain of that? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is king, that he is ruling over the affairs of this world? That he's sovereign? That he has authority over every other ruler and leader on earth? And maybe, more importantly... Do you believe, have you accepted him as your king? Do you bow before him as your ruler? Is he the one in charge of your life? Because if, Gabriel, if what Gabriel has spoken is true, the issue for you and me and every person throughout history is this. Will you bow before King Jesus? Will you release control of your life and give it to him? So forth, be certain of the glorious truth that Jesus Christ is the King of all nations and that He is the King of your life. The, the, the only question is, so by the way, He is 
your ruler, whether you admit it or not. The only question is, will you bow, will you submit to his authority over you? And finally, be certain that, this is our last point, Jesus will be holy. So Gabriel has laid it out there for Mary, okay? He's given her a a glorious description of the Son of God. And instead of passing out, you're going to give birth, Mary, to the Son of God. Uh, or, or, Or not believing the impossible, as Zechariah did about John. I should say the humanly impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. In verse 34 we read, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Mary was a virgin, but she wasn't naive enough not to know how babies were made. And she humbly asked a very reasonable question. How can this happen? How can I have a son since I'm a virgin? As we talked about last week, she is humbly asking for an explanation. And beginning in verse 35, Gabriel explains. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Gabriel gives Mary two basic answers to her question, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And we need to be convinced of these. Let's take the second first. Using Elizabeth, who was old and barren, but is now pregnant as an example, Gabriel makes it clear, nothing will be impossible with God. How does an old barren woman and a virgin get pregnant? Well, put simply, uh, God can do whatever he wants. Nothing's impossible with God. God does, uh, my dad pointed this out to me last week, Psalm what was it, dad? It's in Psalms. God does as he pleases. And he's always successful with what he pleases to do. And if we're certain of this truth, then all the rest falls into place. Someone once said, believe the first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The rest is simple. Now, more specifically, Gabriel's answer to Mary's question, how, is very simply and delicately delicately the Holy Spirit. How can a virgin have a child? How can the, the, this human child be div- the divine Son of God? Answer, the Holy Spirit. And the result of this mysterious work by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary is the Holy Son of God. Holy means pure and good without any defect or deficiency or blemish. Jesus would not only be born holy, born without, not to go too deep, born without original sin, which covers us all, but he would live a holy life. We're born sinners and we prove it by sin. Jesus is born not a sinner and never sins. He would and did in every deed and thought obey his heavenly Father in every way. He would 100% of the time submit to the will of his Father. He would always obey God. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was faced with his greatest temptation, when he was sweating drops of blood as he thought about the coming cross, 
as he prepared to take on your sins and mine, the sins of humanity, and experience for the first time the separation from his father. He said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In all things, Jesus was wholly obedient to his father. And it's the holiness of Jesus. We mentioned this Let's earlier. Let's delve in here a little bit. That's the key to our salvation and our sanctification. It means that he was fit to die as the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that came upon Mary, we are being sanctified, transformed into his likeness. We are not yet holy in all our thoughts and deeds, but in Christ we are both declared holy, righteous, and we're being made holy, righteous by the Spirit of God that lives within us. So be certain of the glorious truth that Jesus Christ was and is holy, holy, holy. And submit to the power of the Spirit as He seeks to make you holy as well. So we've seen Gabriel's glorious description of Jesus, right? Gabriel says to Mary, Fear not, rejoice. This human child will be great, holy, be the divine Son of God. He will be the Savior and King of the world. I mean, that's pretty major, right? This child will be Jesus Christ. And the question for Theophilus and for us, are we certain of these glorious truths? And if so, how will we respond to Jesus? Let me suggest we follow Mary's example. We conclude with Mary's godly response. After hearing what must have been the overwhelming, uh, shocking news that she, a virgin, would not only be pregnant, but she would be carrying the divine Son of God. After Gabriel tells her that the Holy Spirit will will do this, and that nothing's impossible for God, she says, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary says, I'm God's servant, and I'm certain that he's at work. Let it be. I mean, all the ramifications of that. I mean, just having to face Joseph, right? That's a big one. And if what we have seen, what we've been taught this morning, what we've been taught in the past, what we know of the truth of Jesus, if you're certain that Jesus is truly the great, holy, divine Son of God, if He is the Savior and King of the world, then then what other choice do we have but to say, behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be according to your word. Mary said, I'm the servant of the Lord. Yes, let the Holy Spirit come upon me. Let let the power of the Most High overshadow overshadow me, that the child that I bear might be called the Holy Son of God. Let it be. Now, we're not being asked uh, to give birth, to be pregnant, give birth to the Son of God. That's already taken place. That's what we celebrate this Christmas season, right? Right? But if you think about it, we're being asked something even greater. We're being asked to give our lives to and for Him. 
to be certain, to believe that He is the great, holy, divine Son of God, to receive Him as our Savior, to make Him submit to His kingship in our life, to put our faith in His grace, to serve, obey, and live for Him. That's the radical response we're called to have to Jesus Christ. The radical and totally reasonable response. If you're certain about these things, if you're not certain, well, we can deal with that. But for those who are certain, this, I mean, uh, this is an obvious uh, move, right? So I'd encourage each one of us to examine our hearts. As we leave this place and we enter again into the business and distractions of the Christmas season, to be certain of who Jesus is and what He's done historically and what He's done and what He will do in our lives, to daily, no matter the circumstances of life, to put your complete trust in Him, to receive Him for who He truly is, not who we want Him to be, In that moment, for the Apostle John writes, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, His name being everything we've just talked about, who He is, He gave the right to become children of God. When we receive Jesus for who He is, His name, the divine, holy Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who entered our world as Emmanuel, God with us, to save us from our sins. When we receive and believe in Him, we become children of God. Jesus is is the one and only divine Son of God, but we too are adopted into God's family. And we experience salvation from our sins, sanctification of our souls, and eternal life in His presence, where there is joy forevermore. Therefore, I pray that, that we not just file these truths away, just another Christmas sermon, right? But that we will have certainty concerning the things we've been taught. That we will continually say, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be for me according to your word. Jesus, I'm your servant. I receive you as my Savior and I will daily live for you as my King, my Lord. Would you pray with me as Brian comes to lead us to the Lord's table this morning? Father God, we thank you again and again and again for Jesus. Thank you that your word is clear about who he is and what he's done for us. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for each one that you would allow these truths to penetrate our heart, that we would be convinced, we'd be certain of the truth of who Jesus is, and we would respond appropriately, inviting him to be our Savior and our Lord. In Christ's name, amen.